This podcast has been prepared exclusively for institutional, wholesale, professional clients, and qualified investors only, as defined by local laws and regulations. Please read other important information, which can be found on the link at the end of the podcast episode. Good afternoon and welcome to the Thanksgiving Eye on the Market. Uh, In the October note last month, I wrote about how in almost every post-war recession, except for one of them, equity markets preceded the decline in profits and employment and GDP and things like that by several months and said that let's focus on the ISM survey instead because when that bottoms, it, it tends to coincide much more closely to the bottom of the equity markets. So in terms of thinking about when that could happen, we have some approaches to try to figure out where the ISM survey is going, and they're crude, uh, but the fit's actually not bad. And using this approach, the ISM would bottom in the mid to low 40s sometime in January or February of next year. <clears throat> if that were the case, it's not impossible that the uh, the lows that we hit in mid-October would be the lows for the cycle. And, and I Almost everybody I talk to discounts that scenario entirely, and although you know it would be consistent with market history, I, I think that there are more corrections ahead, um, and that something closer to thirty three hundred would be pretty good value for long term investors if we got there. The big question to me now, obviously, is not how high inflation goes; it's probably cresting. The question is how long will it stick around? And we've got a chart in, um, in this month's piece that looks at all the episodes of rising inflation in, the devel- in developed countries. Um, and once inflation spikes, it tends to stick around for a while, which is in stark contrast to the much more rapid decline in inflation that markets are pricing in in both the US and Europe. Now, I know we've got some exogenous issues now with COVID and China and the Russia-Ukraine war. Even so, um, what's priced in about the inflation decline is, is much more rapid than what we've seen historically. Anyway. Um, more on all of this in our, our outlook for next year. The purpose of this month's note is an eye on the market on the three things that I'm thankful for. And my list this year is CH4, HR4346, and MRNA1273. I will, of course, explain. So, number one, why am I thankful for CH4? Well, I'm referring, of course, to natural gas. Uh, natural gas composition is mostly CH4 with little bits of ethane and propane and butane mixed in. Let's look at what was going on in Europe about a month ago. 70% of the fertilizer capacity was shut down. 30% of its aluminum was shut down. Um, Steel plants were closing in Germany, Spain, Poland, and France. Um, One of the biggest companies in Spain furloughed 85% of its workforce, steel producer. The cement companies were shutting down. 30 UK energy suppliers filed for bankruptcy. The French utility EDF was nationalized. Uh, We saw the lowest level of business expectations for energy-intensive German companies since reunification in 1990. And Germany and Italy were seeing the highest inflation rates in 32 and 40 years, respectively. Now, gas and electricity prices have declined a bunch in in Europe since the summer peak, and there's a bunch of initiatives underway to cap energy prices, reduce energy taxes, and provide support to businesses. Eventually, obviously, those are all borne by taxpayers. So some of this industrial production might come back online, but European gas and electricity prices are still two to three times higher than at the beginning of 2021, 
Um, gas prices are still six times U.S. levels, etc. So um, while Europe is set for this winter with plenty of gas storage, uh, they're all, they're, most countries are either at or above 90% of capacity. A lot of what Europe has done to prepare for the winter is also lowering its consumption due to higher energy prices. Um, and that obviously has a lot of negative repercussions. So stepping back for a moment, if I've learned anything from the 12 years that I worked on our energy paper with Vaclav, it's that these renewable transitions are going to take time for technological reasons, political reasons, judicial reasons, behavioral, economic. We go into detail every year in the energy paper. In the meantime, I'm very thankful the U.S. has ample supplies of its own natural gas. And uh, in the latest World Energy Outlook from the IEA, they show global natural gas demand rising uh, by 2030 and 2050 in, in the scenario that, that uh, is attached to the policies that countries are currently pursuing rather than declining. So, and um, we'll go into more detail next year. But there's something that all of you probably understand now about wind and solar power. We're going to need plenty of natural gas power, gas capacity even as we build more wind and solar power. Um, wind and solar are very intermittent, and there's times during the year when there's not enough renewable generation to meet the load demand. This is all pretty simple. As a result, you can't disconnect a megawatt of natural gas every time you add a megawatt of wind and solar power. And uh, the actual amount that you can disconnect is referred to as a capacity credit, and they're computed, and they're they're pretty intensive calculations. We do them. You have to take the hourly generation by type and demand loads in each ISO, which is the independent system operator. Bottom line: every time you add one megawatt of wind and solar power in the in the major ISOs in the United States, you can only disconnect around ten to thirty percent of that uh, in terms of the natural gas that you can unplug because you need that backup thermal capa- capacity. And, uh, and the cost of that backup power is not included in anybody's estimates of, or in most estimates I see, of levelized cost of wind and solar, which is why I think that wind and, that levelized cost concept is, um, is kind of irrelevant. What's more relevant to me on this natural gas question is methane emissions and flaring. Um, and we have a little bit of a discussion in here. You know, the progress is being made slowly. Um, uh, most larger firms have plans to reduce methane emissions and flaring, but only around a quarter of the smaller firms do. And this is from a Dallas Fed survey from last December. And so, the, look, the industry leaders have begun a very important shift from quarterly desktop estimations of methane leakage to more accurate measurements using sensors on planes and things like that. Most of them have committed to eliminate flaring by 2025. Um, there are some new Clean Air Act regulations. A lot of the states have adopted new regulations. There's a European and U.S. partnership called the Oil and Gas Methane Partnership. So the industry leaders are generally moving in the right direction here, um, and, and hopefully uh, through, through both the combination of uh, self-preservation and legislation, the smaller companies will follow. Okay, what's the second thing that I'm thankful for? I mentioned H.R. 4346. That is the semiconductor bill. Um, the U.S. is going to need a lot of semiconductors in the future, particularly if the, renew- if the renewable transition is going to pick up speed through adoption of electric vehicles. The semiconductor intensity of uh, electric vehicles is um, roughly double that of traditional internal combustion engine cars. So 
Unfortunately, uh, as we all know, semiconductor capacity started migrating out of the United States rapidly um, in 1990, fell in half by 2000, and then fell in half again by 2020. So only around something like 12 percent uh, of the United States accounts for only around 12 percent of global semiconductor capacity. Um, the U.S. has a, a large market share of global semiconductor revenues, but that's because it relies heavily on Taiwan uh, for production because Taiwan's got 50% share of high-value-added chip capacity and 60% of the foundry market. I don't think I need to spell out why this might be a geopolitical risk uh, for the United States. So I'm thankful for this semiconductor bill um, that was passed. It, it gives support for U.S. semiconductor companies. Um, I think it helps offset some of the negative consequences of the latest policies restricting their ability to sell chips and equipment to China. Uh, NVIDIA, for example, stock has been in free fall. They, they, 95, they sell 95% of the high-end chips in China. And you know this bill has gotten some criticism as corporate welfare, and I understand that, but if your goal is to improve U.S. semiconductor supply chains, some kind of government support is going to be needed to offset the negative impact of some of these new national security rules. Now, th this semiconductor bill is just a start. It's probably only 10 to 20% of what the U.S. would need to really become substantially semiconductor self-sufficient. So it's just a drop in the bucket, 50, 60 billion, but it gets the ball rolling. And believe it or not, it was a bipartisan effort. Um, in the last few years, we've had a lot of bills that passed um, with zero support. This is the first time in American history Bills passed Congress without a single vote from the opposing party in the House or the Senate. Um, the 2021 American Rescue Plan, the 2022 Inflation Reduction Act are examples of that. Um, and, and when the Trump Tax Cut Act was, was passed, it was the most partisan bill in U.S. history at the time. So the CHIPS bill got 17 GOP senators, 24 GOP House members, and Mike Pompeo also uh, supported it. So... In the context of the world we lived in, in, in where we currently live in, it is definitely a bipartisan bill. Um, just a couple of quick comments, too. The United States relies on Taiwan, but China relies on Taiwan to an entirely different level. 70%, I mean, China only produces 10% of its own chips. The other 90% comes from either imports or foreign firms producing chips in China. Of that 90%, 70% share is Taiwan. So Taiwan produces 10% of China's chips in Nanjing and Shanghai and then exports the remaining 60% from Taiwan. I can't find anywhere in the world an example of one country that's so reliant on another one for a high-value import. For context, Europe was, before the Ukraine war, 20% or 25% reliant on Russian energy. So think about that, 70% reliance on Taiwan for semiconductors by China, that's a huge number. Um, and most of the Chinese foundries are, are working on uh, 14 to 30 nanometer chips. The lead, global leaders like TSMC and Taiwan are already producing at 5 to 7 nanometers. So um, uh, if the U.S. is reliant on Taiwan from a semiconductor perspective, China's reliance on them is much, much, much greater. The last thing I am thankful for this year are mRNA vaccines. Um, 
Now, the news is not all good. The latest COVID variants are showing increased signs of resistance to treatments. Um, the new booster, uh, which is derived from both the original variant and BA5, only has a 12 to 15% uptake in the U.S. The U.S. ranks somewhere around 73rd in the world on booster shots. Um, and vaccines no longer do a great job against infection and transmission. Um, however, they do a great job at preventing hospitalization and mortality, particularly for people like me who are, you know, 60 years old. I just turned 60, uh, which I'm still getting used to. Um, now, what the world really needs is nasal vaccine delivery mechanisms, which might do a better job at preventing transmission and infection, because instead of, I mean, I think the, the vaccines now do a good job at preventing the infection from getting into your lungs, but it doesn't prevent you from, from, from prevent it from getting into your respiratory system, and that's what a nasal delivery might be able to do. We also need pan coronavirus uh, vaccines that are not so variant specific, right? In other words, not just tuned into the into the three dimensional topological shape of one variant or another. Uh, that said, I'm very thankful for these mRNA vaccines, including the Moderna versions that that I received. Um, they have saved a lot of lives in the U lives in, in the U.S. and elsewhere, and uh, we have a chart in here showing how much more lives they could have saved if the vaccination uptake were higher. So uh, there's some charts in here that support all of that, but I consider all of this to be pretty straightforward stuff. Now, as you might imagine, my Thanksgiving list of natural gas, the chips bill, and vaccines is a Venn diagram that doesn't overlap with a lot of Americans in the United States which is why I'm still working alone from my hidden unnamed bunker. Anyway, happy Thanksgiving to all of you, and thank you for listening to the podcast. Bye. Michael Semblis, Eye on the Market, offers a unique perspective on the economy, current events, markets, and investment portfolios, and is a production of J.P. Morgan Asset and Wealth Management. Michael Semblis is the chairman of Market and Investment Strategy for J.P. Morgan Asset Management and is one of our most renowned and provocative speakers. For more information, please subscribe to the Eye on the Market by contacting your J.P. Morgan representative. If you'd like to hear more, please explore episodes on iTunes or on our website. This podcast is intended for informational purposes only and is a communication on behalf of J.P. Morgan Institutional Investments Incorporated. Views may not be suitable for all investors and are not intended as personal investment advice or as solicitation or recommendation. Outlooks and past performance are never guarantees of future results. This is not investment research. Please read other important information which can be found at www.jpmorgan.com forward slash disclaimer dash EOTM.